Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to the Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Our guest, Sam DeLuggage, has been coloring movie images for 30 years. He began his career in Nashville before moving to Los Angeles, where he's worked as a final colorist in every imaginable genre, including feature film, episodic television, commercials, and music videos. He counts all major Hollywood studios among his clients, and his work is seen by millions of viewers every day. Sam is a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Colorist Society International, the International Documentary Association, and Film Independent. In addition to domestic and international studio work, he enjoys working with independent filmmakers and has a particular passion for projects that illuminate the human condition. And Carol, I understand Sam has been a donor to your grants for many years. Yes, Sam has supported our film grant for over 20 years. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I can't believe it's been 20 years. Boy, time flies in this, I in know. this town, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it does. It, just yesterday we were up there with Robert Townsend. <clears throat> when you were getting an award for for your film, uh, that was 1996. Wow! Can you believe that? Yeah. So yes, yeah. we've known each other for a while, Carol, and it, it's it's always <laughs> good to hear your voice. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. So we want to learn about color correcting. We want to find out what color correcting does for films and how it sets a mood and how it draws the viewer into the story. So let's start with what a colorist does, Sam. Sure. Well, um, no matter what you're shooting, whether you're shooting a documentary or a short film or a feature film, you're going to be using multiple cameras, probably, um, multiple lenses, possibly, and um, uh, you're going to certainly have all sorts of different lighting conditions. So at the very minimum, what a colorist does is make all that stuff match. You know, and, and that... In that way of looking at it, if I do my job right, no one knows I exist because it looks like um, every single shot was lit perfectly and they all match and they all flow seamlessly and we're just watching the story. Um, but in a more creative sense, um, I'm part of the storytelling process and I'm uh, help, helping the director and the director of photography uh, set story beats in terms of the look of the film, um, in terms of the mood of the lighting and the contrast ratio and certainly the, the colorimetry. And um, uh, I, I do a lot of work during the day. I have a, sort of a straight job where I work on TV commercials. So a lot of what I'm doing there is emphasizing the product and de-emphasizing background or, you know, bringing out people's faces. And there's a lot of sort of very specific stuff that I'm doing sort of uh, on a psychological level, uh, to, to direct people's eyes. And that same sort of uh, artistry and science works in 
storytelling as well, whether it's episodic television or music video or short film or feature film or documentary. Um, anything that I can do uh, visually to help tell the story um, is is my main job. Wow. Well, let me uh, – this is an incredible amount of work that goes on that we're not aware of behind the scenes. Uh, let me ask you about story beats. Now, because when writers write their script, they usually start every scene with either high tension going down to low or low tension moving up to high. And uh, so – and you are working – is that what you call a story beat? Sure, sure. That sort of thing, or just a shift in mood. You know, if you've got like a, you've got a dramatic scene that's happened at night, and then you sort of, like you said, you've got a shift in in the level of tension, um, because the next scene you cut to daytime and everything's normal again. Um, there's things that we can do with the image to, uh, to enhance that, to amplify uh, the emotion that we're trying to get across to the audience. So. Um, Obviously, lighting, costume, design, all these things are visual elements as well. Uh, and you could consider coloring kind of like mastering, if you know what mastering is for audio, after uh, a, a song has been recorded and then mixed, and then the final process before it goes to distribution is mastering. That's like putting the final polish on it. Well, that's what coloring is for the image. So um, we can take some beautifully photographed work and enhance it just that extra 10 or 15% to make it even more impactful in terms of the emotion that we're trying the audience to feel. Yes, I guess I can, I can imagine because <clears throat> there are some films that you watch that you get, you're so into the story that um, it, it's magic. You, you know, um, I go back to Winter's Bone because I I was cold through that whole film. You know, I was I was wrapping yeah, myself that's up. A, that's a great example. That's that's a, a, a film where you can be watching it in the midsummer, and, and you feel cold watching that movie because uh, uh, it's it's so bleak. The the color palette is very reduced. It's sort of desaturated, and it, it definitely has that winter feel. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite. You know, examples of of great color correction is The Revenant, which is also a movie, obviously set in winter and cold. And um, that that film was shot. Uh, a, a lot of times, those exteriors were available light, just whatever was coming out of the sky. You know, God was your lighting director there. And then you, um, uh, you know, the the work of uh, Emmanuel Lebesky, you know, moving the camera, and then Stephen Scott, the finishing colorist on that show. Um, really emphasize, emphasize the, the the feeling of cold and the the, the bleak surroundings. And um, that you know, there's another uh, example of great work um, from last year, a Black Panther, uh, that Rachel Morrison mm -hmm. shot, and Maxine Gervais uh, was the finishing colorist on on that movie. And um, a completely different kind of vibe. Uh, you know, it was a uh, this this uh, story. Uh, set in this mythical land, but uh, sun-drenched, lots of saturated colors, lots of uh, extreme contrasts. Um, but uh, the the transition from what the camera saw to what ended up on the on the screen was amazing. You know, just a tremendous amount of work. Um, in color one of my correction, favorite, you mean? In color correction, yeah. And what one of my favorite films from uh, this past season was Mary Poppins which was just 
out of sight in terms of uh, the imagery. You know, it was a, it was beautifully shot by Dion Beebe, and then uh, Michael Hatzer was the the supervising colorist on that movie. And uh, the the just the richness and the contrast, and obviously this is a very sort of studio picture, um, not not obviously as effects heavy as something like Black Panther, but still tons of effects layers in there. But to, to blend all that together and make it seem like a whole with all those amazing reds and whites and yellows and blues and just, you know, it was like, it was, um, I'm sure what every filmmaker in the 60s and 70s that made big splashy musicals wish wishes they could have achieved but the technology Amen. wasn't there and 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 now you know this was a modern musical where we could use uh, all the technology that's available to us now and i just thought it was beautiful work it was beautiful and that's one of the magic movies that we we were going, it was some holiday, and my daughter said, what do you want to see? And I said, Mary Poppins. She said, you never want to see a, you know, an ind- a film like that. You always want independence. No, I have a feeling this is going to be good. It was magical from the first moment. You were choom, right into the film, and the colors, it was so full of joy and yes, empowerment. I agree. It was uh, it was just um, so so joyful to watch, and uh, you know, there's just there's a great feeling that you get sitting in a movie theater, and when you're just drenched with light and color like that, um, like the experience in in uh, Black Panther as well. You know, where you just get knocked into your chair by the energy coming off the screen. I love that. I got to give a shout out too to some some work that's being done right now for cable television because there's just some excellent, excellent color correction out there. And a couple of my favorite series from this season are Hostile Planet and Our Planet. And these are these are shows, um, you know, they're, they're nature documentaries, uh, mainly dealing with climate change. But um, they're shot by dozens and dozens of cinematographers with every imaginable camera system from drones to, you know, uh, every camera system that you could possibly buy, underwater, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so there's a unique challenge there in telling those stories. And uh, the the colorists on those shows are just doing an incredible job. Um, Hostile Planet's colored by Simon Bland, and Our Planet is colored by um, Adam Inglis, I think. And, and um, they are just uh, knocking it out of the park. And that, and that is very difficult work because you're working with – you know, very compromised footage sometimes, and trying to um, uh, create a, a a piece that flows, you know, from shot to mm-hmm. shot. And uh, mm-hmm. boy, going from drone to underwater to drone to underwater, <laughs> you know, wow. and, and and it's it's tough. You know, it's really that's heavy lifting in the color correction room. But um, they're you know, it's spectacular, uh, just really beautiful work. Well, but what it does for the audience is it does not. Pull them out of the film. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you want, that's that's the idea. Is you want you want people to believe completely. You know, to buy into the story, to buy into the world that you're creating, whether it's based on uh, the real world, like these nature nature documentaries, or something that's completely imagined, um, like Mary Poppins or Black Panther. You know, it, all these big effects movies. There's there's so much layering and, and density to uh, what, what the supervising colorist is doing. They're working with a huge team of people because every single face, you know, has a, has a different uh, 
a different layer of color correction. Every, you know, all all these like the sky and the ground and the river and the mountains and 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 then uh, all the, all these effects elements that fly in that are just completely computer generated. These are all different layers, and so you're actually working with a team that's, you know, sometimes dozens of people to create um, this finished whole that's all supposed to be bound together and believe, be a believable image that doesn't take you out of the story, that instead takes you into the story and makes you believe this world that's never existed. So it's it's magnificent work. But, you know, th- that's why uh, on these very high-end uh, effects movies, the colorists are sometimes called supervising finishing artists or supervising colorists because they're actually working not just – as a single person in a chair, but with a giant team of people that are all bringing this stuff together. And, uh, yeah, when you do your job right, the audience never realizes that, you know, all these elements are working together. Uh, They just are watching the story, and they're in the story. And that's a secret to a film, in my opinion, that's a good film versus a film that's not. Because I don't want to be pulled out of the story. If you're going to tell me a story, I want to get totally into it and stay there. And and most people don't even understand what pulled them out. Uh, and they just they're shifting around in their seats trying to figure out what happened. There's something wrong here. And because I'm sorry to say, but in my opinion, the colorist gets such little uh, applause for the work that they do because what you're doing is put up, is making the final picture look natural and that's a hard job it can be a very difficult job yeah um and thank you for saying so um <clears throat> you know we <laughs> dps are, are are our best friends and we love them but sometimes we really make them look great <laughs> you know of course and and um and and if they bring us great footage, then we can look great as well. But uh, a lot of times there's challenges, you know. There's there's problems with lenses, problems with cameras, uh, very um, different lighting setups from shot to shot that have to be evened out and and, and made to match. Um, so you know it's a it's a collaborative process uh, at best. And um, <clears throat> I, again, you know it, it, it's. When you're working with a, a team of people, if everybody's got a singular vision of what this thing is supposed to be, um, then you know, we, and everybody's just working toward that one thing, it, it can be really great, you know, and and, and the rewards can be great. Um, I I've always loved working with filmmakers and directors of photography and trying to achieve their vision, and, and that's a big part of what I what I do is try to interpret, you know, what I'm being told, and and some people come in and they have um, a, a better understanding of what happens in the color bay, and some some people really are intimidated, or, or they don't really understand the process. And it's my job to deal with all levels of filmmaker and all levels of of uh, people that are walking into my room, um, and and understand what they are trying to tell me, and see if we can find uh, a way to achieve their vision. Their vision. Yes, it's all about their vision. Well, I, I want to go into what is it like for someone, what should they expect when they go into a colorist for the first time. But I want the audience to realize that you started coloring back in the film world, right? When you were oh, coloring sure. motion picture film. Well, see, what people don't realize is that that Kodak, when they made film, 
It was like a batch, and that would be an emulsion number. They'd make another batch. That's another emulsion number. People would have footage or 16 or 35 millimeter film left over from one production, hold on to it, shoot it on the next. So they have different color batches, and colorists had to deal with that. So that a good colorist, people would wait months to get it because it was almost all visual at that time. There was a massive amount of equipment, but not like today. You had to find a guy who was brilliant to get you the best film. And so tell us what that was like. Well, yeah, back when I started, everything was 16 and 35 millimeter. And um, it's true what you say. People would use different film batches. You know, you would shoot one stock for an interior scene and a different stock for an exterior scene and, and another stock for a nighttime scene. And, and within those different film stocks that had different uh, color temperature, uh, color balances, and different um, uh, exposures of index, uh, you, you would have um, you would also have batch variations. You know, from one batch to the next, uh, the film would be more green, more blue, less or more light sensitive, more grain. Um, and then even from day to day, even if you were shooting the same batch of film. If the temperature was running a little hot or a little cool in the lab, that would that would change what the film looked like when it came out of uh, out of the developing developing process. Um, mm-hmm. So making all that stuff match uh, was uh, it was a it was a big job. And so what we what we would typically do, you know, would be to take a representative frame from uh, each scene and store that, and then try to make everything else in that scene matched that. And and that's still kind of the process today. You know, when I sit down to look at a, a, a new scene that I've never seen before, I'll try to find a representative frame that's usually a wide shot that has a big view of the set and, and you know, a bunch of the characters and represents the overall lighting scheme of the scene. And I'll I'll color that uh, until the director and the DP are happy with it. And then we'll save that and say, okay, that's going to be our hero. And then we're going to try to make all the other coverage match that. Um, and even today with digital cameras, you know, you've still got lighting variations. You've still got lens variations. Those things haven't changed. Um, but you, we don't have the film stock variation that we used to deal with. Um, I miss film. I, I, I just, you know, it's beautiful. Nothing else looks like film. You can sometimes – right. Sometimes make a digital camera approach the, the look of film, but film always looks like film, and uh, I, I love it when filmmakers still shoot it. You know, I'm working on uh, some some TV marketing for um, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood right now, and that's a movie that's shot on film, and boy, does it look like it, and it's just, you know, it's amazing. It's gorgeous. Oh, good. I'll make sure I see that. Oh, but in the theaters, will they have a film projector? That's the problem. That, well, that's that's kind of up to distribution and, and Tarantino. You know, when he did uh, Hateful Eight, he did make film prints, and I went and saw a 70-millimeter film print of that wow. movie that was shot on film, photochemically colored, and and uh, and projected on film. And it was a knockout. But, uh, you know, you rarely get that experience these days. You almost... All films, even if they end up being projected on film, are going through some sort of digital process. Uh, so the negative is scanned after you know you shoot negative in the camera, and then it's processed, um, uh, developed, 
and then it's scanned, and then it becomes a digital file that it goes through post-production, editing, and color, and then, you, you know, occasionally filmmakers will make a film print. Um, uh, what else did I see that was shot on film and developed and, and, pro- and projected on film? Oh, um, uh, the Phantom Thread, which oh, uh, yes. didn't, yeah, yeah, be, be just gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. Um, you know, natural lighting, uh, shot on 65 millimeter, projected on 70 millimeter. It was unbelievable. Uh, didn't love the movie, but it sure was nice to look at the images. <laughs> no, I didn't like the movie either. When it was over, I thought, wow, what a that was a strange story, but the colors and the clothes and the acting and everything else, it was really worth it. And just the yeah. way the light looked coming through the windows and falling off oh. on those, you know, the, yeah. you know, those big, big rooms and you could see the atmosphere in the rooms and it was, yeah, it was a knockout. And it was like, it was a really a love letter to classic cinematography, I thought. Exactly. Every, I mean, there were so many scenes where it was as if it was a, a painting that what you would see in the Louvre. It was right, gorgeous. right, yeah, yeah, very painterly, yes. Okay, well, let me get into. Let's get back into. Um, if someone, let's say, someone has uh, never been in a colorist room before, what uh, what happens in a color okay. session? Well, typically after you've done your edit, um, you know, I'll get some version of uh, an edit decision list, whether it's an XML or an AAF, um, and it will refer back to your original footage. And so I'll create um, the edit timeline in my room. And so I'm working on, uh, in, in my world, I work on a system called Baselight. Uh, a lot of people know DaVinci Resolve, which is another powerful system that's out there. Uh, there, there are others. There's Nukoda, there's Luster, there's there's several platforms. But um, essentially, all all these systems have uh, the same tool set, um, in, a, in at least in broad strokes, for color correction. Um, so I, I'm looking at a timeline of the movie, and I'm going to go through and talk with the director about what what are, what is the story that we're trying to tell, and we're going to stop and look at representative representative shots of each scene and talk about what is the tone what is the emotional tone what are we trying to go for here how does this flow into the next scene how does it relate to the previous scenes and we'll uh, you know just start very basically coloring from you know raw camera uh, information um, to a finished look for that for that single shot you know, and so mm-hmm. what I do when I first sit down with somebody is I talk about the story first before we even start looking at film, and then and then we'll go and we'll you know make notes as we go about uh, certain shots and certain scenes and what they mean and how they are telling the story and what the so the color journey of the entire movie is, uh, and and then by the end of the first session. Uh, when the filmmaker walks out, they should have a pretty good feeling about what their movie is going to look like because they're going to see uh, some some frames from all over their movie that tell the story that we've we've painted together. And then I'll they'll go away, and I'll typically work for a week or two, uh, and then they'll come back, and um, and I'll will I will have filled in all the holes, you know, I will have done all the coverage, and um, and stitch the whole thing together and so we sit down and we watch it and then we make notes and do a trim pass and then sometimes another trim pass 
and talk about specifics that need to change on a shot-by-shot basis, and that's that's the process. But when you first sit down, it's 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 kind of an overview of the entire piece, um, and it's more about let's let's find what what's in this imagery together and see how we can best tell the story that you're trying to tell. Brilliant. That's brilliant. And I know that you have worked with people outside of Los Angeles, and and it's been a perfect uh, working relationship with all the new technical things. How does that work when some, say, like the men you work with in Hawaii, where you did their film, you did a great job. Oh, well, thanks. You know, that, yeah. I mean, that's one thing that um, that everything's shifting to digital and not film has has brought us is that we can, you know, send files very easily. Um, across wide distances. So, you know, I have some some clients that I actually just met face to face after working with them for three years. I finally just <laughs> met up with them last month, and uh, and it, it was lovely to finally, you know, sort of like see them face to face and talk about their projects and everything. But, but um, they sent me, uh, you know, a documentary was the first thing that we did together, and so I I got a file via the internet and. Uh, we, I called them up and I said, well, what's the story we're trying to tell? And we sort of had like a long-distance session where, you know, we talked about um, what they wanted individual scenes to look like. And I worked up some examples for them and sent them representative shots. And then they said, yes, we like uh, version B, not version A. Or, or um, you know, we'll take this, uh, this, this third idea that you've got and go with that for this scene. And then so then we had a roadmap and uh it was possible without ever meeting somebody face to face or for them with them sitting down with me that we could um that we could ar- arrive at an agreement about what the film was supposed to look like um so yeah i mean you don't have to be in los angeles or new york or you know london to to work with a great colorist now um although i will say this um it's important to know what you're looking at. And in my color correction bay, I have uh, a $40,000 monitor that's maintained and calibrated on a regular basis. Um, and I know that it's accurate, and I know that the colors and the luminance that it's giving me are exactly what they're supposed to be. If you're looking at uh, your your laptop or your iPad, um, you're not necessarily – sure what you're looking at in terms of the trueness of the display and so that that is that is a problem uh working in this digital world uh, because people don't have calibrated displays and they're making critical decisions so um if you can it's always best to sit down with the colorist in a proper theater or with a proper monitor and 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 see something on a calibrated system uh, because that's the way it's going to look if it ever ends up in the theater. And hopefully that's the way it's going to look when it goes home to everybody on uh, a streaming service as well. I mean, right. that's, that, it, that's always been a problem. You know, it's like even b- before Amazon and Hulu and Netflix, you could, you could never call, control the end product. Every Everybody's television was different. Well, now everybody's computer is different. Everybody's iPhone is different. Whatever people are watching your product on, you can't control that, but there are mandated calibration standards from SMPTE, uh, the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, that um, that post-production houses have to maintain. 
And so when you walk into a real facility that's got a proper monitor or a proper projector uh, and, and the, the, the environment is correct for viewing that, um, you get a, a truly accurate representation of what's being done to your image. And you do your best on the calibrated system and then hope that everybody else does their job down the road. You know, you can't control downstream, unfortunately. You can't control what happens when somebody's watching it, uh, you know, on, on the bus, on their iPhone. But uh, <laughs> but if we give them what we're supposed to give them, hopefully everybody else does their, pro their process correctly downstream. Right. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I know that there are a lot of inexpensive or even free software out there for color correction. So tell me why it would benefit a filmmaker to use a professional like you instead of trying to color it on their own. Well, yeah, you know, I think um, I encourage filmmakers to go out there and get a free piece of software. I mean, there's a there's a free version of Baselight. There's a free version of DaVinci Resolve that you can download and play with. But, um, uh, you know, when – when editing systems became ubiquitous and practically free, everybody thought that they were an editor. And and the same thing is kind of going on right now with color correction. You know, there's a lot of free software out there. So people think, well, I don't need to go to a professional color, so I can do this myself. But, you know, again, what I was saying about calibrated monitors is very important. That's the most important thing about going to a proper facility is that you know that what you're seeing is the, are the real values that are actually represented by the files that you're creating. But it's also, you know, it's, it's not just pushing a button. I mean, people think I can just slap a LUT, um, a lookup table, on this footage that I've created and that it's going to come out the, the backside of this LUT and look perfect. And that's really not the case. You know, the LUT is, um, is a useful tool, but it, it makes a lot of assumptions about your exposure and about what the camera's doing. Um, and if you just put a LUT on your footage and, and, and that's all you do, you're going to find that your shots don't match from shot to shot. And th there's a lot of heavy lifting involved. There's a lot of just diligent work that has to happen from shot to shot to make things match. And then when you start going into more specific detail and you're working with secondaries and you're windowing things and you're, 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 you're separating foreground from background and things like that, that's a lot of stuff that a, a, a trained, experienced colorist knows how to do quickly and efficiently and, and will, they'll match. Uh, and when you're doing that yourself, you're going to find that it's – really frustrating, you know, to make shots match from sh from shot to shot, from camera to camera, from lighting setup to lighting setup. Um, it's not for everybody. I mean, some people, some filmmakers can really understand the process and warm up to it, and I encourage everybody to, like, go out there and get the software and try it. But uh, I think for most filmmakers, they, they are more um, interested in – being the overall storyteller and not getting into the weeds on the technical details. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of people find what I do for a living like watching paint dry because it's, it's <laughs> tedious and it's slow and it's meticulous work. And it's not for everybody, you know. 
Um, mm-hmm. But there is no, you know, there's no sort of like one button solution where I can just like I can just put my film through this piece of software and it's going to be colored and I'll be done. And why would I need to spend thousands of dollars using a professional when I can do it myself? Well, it's going to look like you just put it in the piece of software and pushed a button. <laughs> You know, there's a difference. There's a difference in, in quality. You know, same same thing with mixers, you know. Same things with visual effects people. You know, there, there's a reason why professionals are paid what they're paid, and that's because they have lots of experience and they've dealt with every imaginable scenario. Um, you know, so when you throw something at a professional colorist, he or she knows exactly how to get out of that problem, you know, and how to make it flow and how to, you know, make this the, – this, this problematic shot matched the shot that came before it. And I think that having cut your teeth in the film world brought you so much further along than most of the current day colorists because you've been doing, you could do this in your sleep almost. I mean, this is what is needed is the experience that, oh, I had that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, someone had that same problem and here's how I fixed it, Right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for knowing what images are supposed to look like. And still today, the gold standard for the way an image is supposed to look like is the way that, you know, film looked 20 years ago, sadly. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, we're we're in a new world where there's like there's HDR, so we have a, a larger color gamut and 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 a, a wider range of contrast that can be projected now. So that's very exciting. But when it comes to just telling a story and the, re- the contrast relationship between faces and background and sky and earth, those things are sort of like they're, they're related to classical painting and classical photography. And um, if you don't have a background in that, um, then you don't have a reference for what images should look like what really good photography looks like um i I, you know not to take anything away from people that are 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 just now getting started in this business in in uh with digital cameras and and they don't really know film uh, because they what choice do they have but i think they should go back and look at what great films from the last hundred years look like you know because Mm -hmm. That is the language that we all speak, and if you don't have a sense of history, then um, you know you're, you're missing out on uh, a great education there. Um, I'm excited about you know uh, high high dynamic range imagery and what cameras can do, and um, I think that there's a place for that. But I, I also think that there's a lot of industry-driven buzz about new technology when really when it comes down to it what we're doing is telling stories and and that stuff doesn't really change and so you know there's a lot of interest in selling people cameras that have higher resolutions and 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 televisions that have higher resolution and everybody wants to shoot in 8K now you know but that doesn't change the you know the fact that you're telling stories and if you get past all the noise of manufacturers trying to sell equipment um it comes down to a human connection with characters on the screen. And uh, I think it's really important that colorists be rooted in that process 
more exactly. than because the technology is always going to change, but storytelling is not. That's where that's where it all started, and that's where it's going to end, telling yeah. the story. Well, I know that you get involved with advice on post-production with people that come to you. So uh, because right now there are so many new bells and whistles on the cameras when they rent them or buy them <clears throat> that sometimes they think they're getting a really great look when they're not. And, you, and they need advice. They have to have someone to get feedback with who has been there and seen that problem before. So you normally suggest that people uh, hire a colorist or bring them on board uh, early on in the process for that for that advice section, right? Tell me yeah, about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of times um, with uh, independent filmmakers, I, I arrive at a project after it's been edited, and then people realize suddenly, oh, shoot, I've got to make this festival in a month, and I need a colorist. And so I get that call, and, and I ask, well, what are you shooting? And they're like, oh, it's shot. Oh, what are you editing on? Oh, it's edited. So uh, here's my project, and can you color it? And I say, yes, I can. But if only I had been involved from the beginning, we could make this imagery look so much better. But what you've done is baked in a problem. So in an ideal world, absolutely get your post-production people on board before you ever roll camera and test your workflow. Um, because there are some simple workflow decisions that can be made and and, uh, and and sort of like, you know, carved in stone for a production before you ever start that are really going to uh, help you in the post-production end of things. Um, a lot of filmmakers get seduced by shooting in 6K or 8K. You know, I, I, I get student films all the time, short films that are shot in 8K, and I'm like, where's this going to be seen? They're like, oh, well, it's going to go to a festival, and then it's going to be seen on YouTube. And I'm like, okay, so you've created a mountain of data that everybody, you know, your editor has to sift through, and I have to sift through. And uh, and it's going to cost you money for all these hard drives and all this ingest time and all this render time, you know, and w why, you know, because – the, the film is not going to look any better. I don't, I don't need more pixels. I need better pixels. The thing that you didn't do, which I wish you had done, if you had talked to me from the front end, is like if you had used a different codec on your camera, we would have better color definition. So when it gets into my room and I'm dealing with an underexposed shot and I don't have much data to work with, if you had made one simple adjustment in your workflow, we'd have – so much more range to make this a more beautiful image. And those are the sorts of discussions that you can have if you get your post-production people involved from the beginning. And, and I, I'm all about testing. I'm like, let's please test the workflow. Let's get our hands on this camera. Let's go through every single process. You know, let's shoot some stuff. Let's run it through the editing system. Let's get it to me. Let's look at it and see if there's, if there's something where it breaks down. You know, and um, that can only happen if you get your post-production people involved from the beginning. So please, you know, find your editor, find your mixer, find your colorist before you make your movie, and get them involved because they, they, these are the people that are going to have to deal with it on the back end of production. And um, you know, you can save yourselves 
yourself tons of money and tons tons of time um, by consulting people. And advice from me is always free, and and tests are always free. You know, if I'm committed to a project, I'll test for days with somebody to make sure that we've got the best workflow that we can possibly have for that project. Um, and, and I'm invested, you know. I, I want to make sure that the image is going to be as great as it possibly can be. My job is to make filmmakers look their best. And um, the the only way that I can really do that is to be involved from the front end. Wow. Your job is to make filmmakers look their best. What a great statement because that's the whole thing wrapped into one is the colorist's job is to make it look great so people – think that that the sun was always in the right place and that the mood was always set right this is great exactly well now let me talk to you about uh, this post-production because it is so important now you've brought it up and we're all thinking oh my gosh i never thought that i should uh, have post-production decided before I while I'm still raising money to shoot the film but it sounds like that's very important so should a filmmaker interview their post-production personnel just like they would their production crew oh yeah for sure I mean if you're when you're looking for a colorist you you want to know um, you're going to have some idea of what your budget is um, for your overall project and then you know, if you've done your, your, your full budget, then you know about what you're expecting to spend on post-production. So you want to find somebody that's worked on the kind of project that you're working on, ideally. Um, you should also ask, you know, what, like, can you get this done in the timeline that, that I'm expecting? Now, in the independent film world, you, you know, a lot of times you're, you're trading off speed for price. Um, you know, if you got somebody that's like for me, I have a day job, so when I work on independent projects, I do it on the side. So that doesn't that means that I'm not going to be able to dedicate necessarily 10 hours a day to your project. But you know, I'm going to make uh, an independent an independent filmmaker, uh, you know, a great price uh, if they have the patience to let me work on it nights and weekends. Um, you can also find somebody that can do it. You know all day, every day, uh, but that's going to cost you money. Um, so, you know, there's there's questions of the type of work that um, you're going to be doing, the expected timeline, are there deadlines, and can we absolutely make those deadlines, um, and budget, obviously. Um, and then uh, it, it's good to, to ask questions about, like, what what is a realistic expectation for notes and revisions? Um, when I sit down with somebody and we take a first look at the picture and then I give them a first version, um, there's going to be – it's very rare that somebody says, looks great, let's walk away. You know, usually <laughs> filmmakers right. – yeah, filmmakers have some revisions that they want, and that's to be expected. That's fine. Um, uh, but you need to know, like, what is part of the bid that you're getting, like how many revisions and, and how much – in the way of notes is going to be allowed within a certain budget level and and how much is going to cost you uh, uh like an overage extras you know um and, and what sort of charges would those be and then you also need to know about like deliverables like are you going to be do you need a dcp because a lot of festivals now need now require a, a digital cinema package um for delivery and is that part of 
the deliverables package that you're expecting from your colorist. Um, there's a bunch of questions, you know, that you should ask. But yes, you should interview people, uh, just like you would interview a costume designer or a set designer or a director of photography, um, and find out if they're a good fit. And then, you know, there's that thing that you can't really put your finger on, which is vibe, which is, you know, uh, personality. And do you can you get along with this person? Do you have a meeting of the minds? Do you understand each other? And and do you feel like uh, you know, the colorist understands your project and understands what you're going for. And um, there's certain people that are, uh, you know, they're they're more geared to do commercial work, or they're more they're more geared to do, um, say, uh, a certain kind of episodic television. And you know, if you've got a very specific vision, you want to make sure that the colorist um, can execute that vision and understands and honors what you know you as a filmmaker uh, are trying to do um i did a, a film recently where um the director came in with uh, a bunch of she had some clips that she had pulled off of youtube of television shows that she liked and then she also had some uh some rips from like fashion magazines and she was mm -hmm. going for a very deliberate look and uh and I really appreciated that because I understood immediately she didn't really have the language um, in terms of, of technical photography terms to tell me what she wanted to do. But she said, I want it to look like this, and she pointed to a photograph. And that, that was like worth a thousand words, you know. Uh, I could look at it and go, oh, I understand. Now you're, I'm looking at, at, you know, a printed image as opposed to an image that's made up of, of lighted pixels. But let's see what we can do. And... Um, and then once she saw that I understood what she meant, and, and I, I, I painted a frame for her, and then we understood each other, and then and she said, yes, you know, this is going to be great. We can make this work. And, and then it got very exciting. Oh, yes, I would think so. You're both communicating, and, and visuals help. But I, I tell you, I want to go back to what you were saying when, <clears throat> when people want it cheap and they want it fast. There's a woman I know who's a teacher, and she says, um, you you can never have all three of these, but you can only have two out of three, cheap, good, and fast. So you can have it cheap and fast, or you can have it cheap and good, but you can't have it good, fast, and cheap. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. It's and the so three-legged stool of post-production, yes. <laughs> It's right. true, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's something that you need to realize if you're an independent filmmaker is don't don't come to someone a, a week before your festival deadline and say I need this colored because you're yeah. you're going to be in a world of hurt. You're either going to spend a lot of money or you're going to get a product that you're not happy with. You know, these these things take time. Mixing takes time. Coloring takes time. Editing takes time. Um, and I love working with independent filmmakers. I love people that really have a passion for what they're doing and, and have, you know, put their film on their credit cards or done crowdfunding or, or, or mortgaged their house, you know, to make their film. Right. You know, I, 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 you know, I've seen people do it. Uh, but, you know, you, you, when you get to the end of the process, you don't want to compromise. When you've got, you know, you're, so much heart in your project, um, and and you feel like your entire career is riding on this. You know, you want 
you want people that are as invested in the storytelling process as you are. And uh, um, so, you know, find find those people early and get them on board. You know, get your colorist, get your mixer, get your editor on board before you ever roll camera. I can't say it enough. Um, That's very and, and then And then, yeah, and then you're not in that bad position of I've got – $1,000 and a week to get this to the festival, and I'm screwed. You know, that's just a, that's a, that is an unworkable situation. You're not going to be happy with what you get. Exactly. Well, Sam, do you work on uh, independent films, feature films? I do. I do. I, I, I do a few a year. I don't have a lot of time to do as many as I would like to. I, um, I, I, I In a good year, I might do 10 independent features in a year. Um uh, and then I do a ton of short films, and I do some music videos, and I do you know independent uh, commercials for people, and a lot of web content these days. Uh, like I oh. said, I have a day job where I do TV spots for a living. That's what pays the bills. And then I have uh, independent filmmakers, you know, that um, I do more for the for the creative juice that it gives me than for anything else. Like I said, I love working with people that are passionate and really have a story to tell. And if it, you know, the, in a best, in a, in, in a perfect world, I, I'm invested in that story too. I care about what they're trying to, to say. And so I, I tend to gravitate lately to, uh, you know, unique stories about human nature, about people. And we're in this very strange time, you know, Politically and climactically, and and I and I and I uh, I feel that intently and so in, in, intensely, and I, I want I want to work with filmmakers that um, that have something to say about that, and, and I, I love working with documentarians uh, because they're usually trying to right some wrong, they're usually trying to expose something that needs to be exposed, and uh, I um, I get a charge out of working on projects that make a difference. And so I I do tend to be a little picky about the projects that I get involved with um, independently. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, the, the great thing about knowing you, Carol, and about From the Heart Productions is, is that um, the people that gravitate to what you're doing uh, tend to be great people and tend to be impassioned storytellers with with their heart in the game and and uh they're not just in it for the money they're not just you know you know brazenly commercial they're doing something that matters and so i've i've met so many wonderful people you know from the work that you're doing and from the outreach that you do with independent filmmakers um so i encourage you know people that are in your program and your 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 funding programs and your 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 writers that you work with and filmmakers that find you to to come talk to me you know I mean my my door is open and uh, it, like I said advice is always free. Oh how kind of you thank you so much because I've seen your work and it's incredibly good. Uh, well let me ask you uh, how can people reach you Sam? Well uh, the best way to find me is just just email me it's Sam D Color at gmail.com and uh tell me that you 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 heard me on this this podcast or uh tell me that you you know are coming to me through Carol Dean and through from the heart and and uh you'll certainly get a response and we'll start a dialogue. Great. 
Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you from, uh, for all the filmmakers for the love you have of films and filmmakers. We, you can't buy that. Your passion is so perfect for the independent filmmaking world. So we thank you for that, Sam. Well, certainly. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is a pleasure, and it's an honor to work on, on people's uh, projects. You know, I love seeing um, great ideas come to the screen. Uh, and, and make a difference, and uh, and certainly you know some of the filmmakers that um, that I've I've met through independent projects have gone on to be very successful commercial filmmakers. Um, you know one of the one of the things that I started in the business doing a long time ago was music videos, and a lot of those people were just like people just straight out of school that were breaking the rules, you know, and it was fun and just like. <laughs> spending the record company's money to make little short films and 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 try something wildly different and some of those people became some of the star commercial and and uh and and studio filmmakers that we know today you know so you never know where the next great filmmaker is going to come from and i think that you know everybody gets their start doing independent projects and short films and uh you won't get any judgment from me on that even though i work on big splashy studio pictures during the day, um, you know, I, I can bring that expertise uh, to independent filmmakers. Perfect, perfect. Everything is great. Thank you so much, Sam. We really uh, thank you for the time and the information you've given us. Uh, it means a lot to share this knowledge. Well, it, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and, and to thank connect with you. people in your universe. Oh, they're going to love it. Thanks a lot, Sam. Take good care of yourself. Same to you, Carol. Thank you so much. Be well. Okay. Okay. Yes, thank you, Thank Claire. you, Sam. Okay. All right. All right. And, and also, to our listeners, I want to tell you how grateful we are for the donations you've given at FromTheHeartProductions.com to support our podcast. Carol and I sincerely thank you, and we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for more shows. Also, join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.